0: Hey, guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for joining on this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And our guest today holds a Bachelor's of Music from the University of Hartford, a Master's of Music from the University of Southern California, and a Juris Doctorate from Pepperdine University School of Law. He is a partner in the Vincente-Setterberg Law Firm and the co-founder of the Composite Agency. He's a recognized thought leader in the California Cannabis and Entertainment Communities and it's so happy. I'm so proud and happy to have him here with us today. Please welcome Mr. Jeffrey Walsh. Thanks so much, Jeffrey, for being here and joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel.
1: Not at all, Montel. Pleasure to pleasure to meet you, man, and thanks so much for having me on.
0: So now, Jeffrey, this is kind of strange, buddy. I mean, you got involved in cannabis kind of as an afterthought. You started off in music, then got a law degree, then decided to work in cannabis. Right, why don't you explain how that happened?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I moved out to Los Angeles with the intent of being a studio musician. You know, music was sort of the the one thing in my life that, uh, you know, I was was gifted uh, by God with. Music came easy to me, wanted to, you know, teach, record and perform professionally, all of which I was able to do once I moved out to Los Angeles. Um, The reality was once I started taking more and more gigs, I continued to get frustrated seeing the uh, the agents and managers leave in, in nicer cars and have nicer uh, qualities of life. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to law school and uh, I'm going to sort of work on the business side of music, become an entertainment lawyer. Um, and that's what sort of led me um, to, to Pepperdine to, to to pursue law. Why don't
0: you have brag a little bit? Talk a little bit about who, some, who are some of the uh, musicians you did some sessions for?
1: Sure. Um, a couple couple episodes uh, on Family Guy. I was uh, performed with the, the Hollywood Bowl, and I was uh, first sub with the L.A. Phil uh, Harmonic while I was performing. Um, you know, had a roster of about 10 students at the time. Um, you know, got to tour uh, around the world um, with the New World Symphony, who's based out of uh, Miami, Florida. Um, and so, you know, music was uh, an avenue for me to, to tour the world. Um, and, uh, you know, very, very grateful for that. Um, But, you know, after a couple of years, I sort of realized that, uh, you know, the upside on uh, on becoming a lawyer and, uh, you know, practicing as an agent or an entertainment lawyer was something that I think ultimately, uh, you know, I was going to be happier with. So,
0: okay, so you went ahead and went into law to pursue a career as a manager agent went to work for a William Morris Agency, right?
1: That's right. So so post-graduation, um, you know, so I ended up, not, not to sort of backtrack, but I ended up discovering cannabis my first year of law school. But, you know, post-graduation, I still had to sort of get that entertainment bug out of me. And, you know, with the opportunity to work at, you know, William Morris Endeavor, um, I had to take advantage of that. And I spent about two years there and it was essentially like getting a master's degree in the entertainment industry. Um, I know that, you know, you, you've worked with them in the past. And, uh, you know, for, for me, it was, um, really, really cutting my teeth in the industry. The pace of work there is exceptionally high. Um, I had, I was fortunate enough to have a tremendous mentors there, Courtney Braun and Brian Cohen. Uh, Courtney is, um, you know, sort of number two in business and legal affairs there. Uh, Brian Cohen is a partner in the personal appearance department. Um, and that really sort of helped, I think, teach me how to be a leader, not to be afraid. And the, the, the reality that if you want to get where you're going, it, it takes a lot of hard work, right? Blessings are blessings. And some people are blessed with uh, certain things that others aren't. But at the end of the day, if you want to get where you're going, you got to put in the time. Um, and that, that really, really sort of taught me what I had to do. To get to the place I wanted to be um, in life, um, and so I had a wonderful experience there. Worked my tail off, um, but I wouldn't change that experience for the world.
0: And you, by right then, while you were working at Tellum, you said you you came to the cannabis experience your first year of law school. So I assume that that cannabis experience continued while you were there.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, you know, so really, really started working in cannabis back in 2010. That was my first year in law school. Back in 2010, there wasn't uh, a licensed cannabis industry right in California. And so the, the role of a lawyer in cannabis at the time was keep your clients out of jail, right? And there was there, there were some affirmative defenses in place. Um, California sort of passed the first medical marijuana laws in the country back in 1996, and then evolved those in 2003. Um, and so we were working with a finite set of laws at the time. Um, But, um, you know, my goal when I went to WME, and people thought I was crazy at the time, Montel, because I started working there in uh, 2013. um, And I told everyone, hey, I want to be the world's first cannabis-focused talent agent, you know, and and I was a little too far ahead of the curve at the time. um, But I certainly, I think, you know, began to carve out a little niche for myself there as, as being you know, what was hopefully a, a bridge between the entertainment and cannabis communities. And that was really uh, my sort of thesis behind wanting to go to WME, not only to sort of try my hand at the entertainment community, but also to see if I could do something um, that, that no one else had, had yet done.
0: Wow. Wow. And OK, so but but again, now you were just dabbling a little bit in those first couple of years there in WME, working more as, a, as an agent of what an agent would normally do.
1: That That's correct. Yeah, I spent about um, half my time um, working as a lawyer um, in corporate business affairs. Um, that was with Courtney Braun. Um, but that was sort of my, my lane in. Once I um, really, really started to make connections and relationships there, um, you know, talk to the personal appearance department. And I wanted to really, really begin to connect directly with artists and managers. And the personal appearance department was the way to do that, right? And so um working with uh Mr. Working on Mr. Brian Cohen's desk, you know, he represents um you know Damian Marley and, and Nas and a bunch of other sort of cannabis friendly artists. Um, that that for me was a good opportunity to begin to make those connections personally, um, and also help you know, give myself a further education in how the entertainment world worked. Because, um, like I said, I wanted to position myself as having some unique insight into being able to, you know, bring these two industries that um, I was passionate about together.
0: Now, yeah, but, but back then, you're not kidding, that was a really complicated time in the industry. Talk a little bit about some of the, the challenges you, you first faced
1: sure well i think you know as i think the biggest challenge was overcoming uh negative perception right the the, the sort of generations of propaganda that that had preceded us um you know that are associated with you know, users of cannabis or the cannabis industry generally, right? And so, I think first and foremost, my goal was to show that you know, being an advocate for the cannabis industry didn't mean that you weren't a high quality um, operator or you weren't a consummate professional, right? Um, the, the the plant is uh, is capable of doing tremendous things for really anyone is is my belief, um, and I thought.
0: I know you probably heard back then, because I I was very open back in 2008. I think maybe 2006 is when I first came out and talked about this. I was using cannabis on a daily basis and got no support whatsoever from the
1: Hollywood. Uh, Absolutely. And I, I, I got to see you speak a couple years later, but I think it was 2015 in Texas, um, you you did a keynote at a cannabis event in Texas. That was the first time I, I saw you speak live on the topic, and, and I was inspired. And that was that was right, uh, you know, right after I had left um, WME, and I, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm doing the right thing. You know, when when I ended up leaving, um, just because i I'd, I'd sort of hit I'd sort of hit that ceiling there as far as they, they weren't going to allow me to start um, a cannabis division or, or lead a cannabis division. At the time, now, ironically, uh, last year, I think every major talent agency, uh, they're still keeping it a little secretive, um, but all of them have some type of cannabis focused division um, within those agencies to focus on, you know, those types of deal flows and opportunities for, for their representation. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Do you want to know how to become a social media
1: influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the way, the way it changed, it's it's so crazy how, you know, I, I think back on on days where literally I would bring up cannabis and see, you know, a frown on a face and, you know, they didn't want to touch the 10-foot pole. And now everybody and their mother's trying their best to become a part of the industry, right?
1: Absolutely, and I think, for better or worse, right, um, a lot of this has been sort of addressed with time. And I think cannabis is—it cannabis is such a personal medicine, right—that until it sort of happens to you or someone close to you, where you know you have a situation or you you, you suffer from an illness where cannabis can help, um, it really, really takes I think firsthand experiences for people to sort of you know shift their opinion. Um, Because then when they see, um, you know, someone who's really sick and cannabis can really sort of help them, you know, manage pain effectively without having to take, um, you know, highly addictive opiates, etc. That is something that um, I think for better or worse, a lot of this is just being patient. Um, you know, and sort of letting the medicine speak for itself. And using platforms like yours is why I'm so thankful um, that you do what you do, you know, and have this platform and share um, these experiences, you know, it's just about, you know, getting these positive messages out to as many people as possible with, you know, legitimate, um, sort of authoritative figures, right, And, and voices. And I think that's how we, you know, evolve the industry to a point where, you know, I think our goal at our and at our, at certainly at a more creative agency is to decriminalize cannabis in the average, you know, consumer's brain. Right. And how do we do that? Education um, and hopefully, you know, some, uh, some some entertainment as well.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think right now and I've been saying this you know, for the last since we started Let's Be Blunt. I mean, I think the biggest problem that this industry has right now is we spent a lot of time in the last three or four years being B2B. So many people want to get into business, business. Everybody's in the business, but they forgot about the consumer. And the consumer, we're not educating them to give them a reason why they even want to choose cannabis over what they've been choosing today. And so the more we can educate and the more we have opportunities to get education out there, I think this industry will change and is going to change. I mean, especially even like right now, I mean, during the COVID-19 crisis, we seem to be sitting a little dormant, though. I got to tell you, I've been... I've been mm, eh, disappointed is the best way to say it, in the industry. You know, I mean, there's so much more. I and mean, we ought to talk offline about this, but I mean, you know, there's so much we could be doing right now. Um, you know, I, I've uh, recently am in some conversations with, you know, uh, an industry leader who, his office, who is somebody we consider one of the top industry leaders in the space. But we put everything on hold during COVID. And I think COVID is the that we should not be putting anything on hold because there's so many more people ordering and having deliveries made to their front door right now than were in the last 10 years. People who recognize that they're getting tired of cracking open that fifth of the or that fifth of JD, and recognize the weight they're putting on with JW and said, hmm, maybe I will try that. And now they're quietly doing it in their home. This is the time that we should be actually out here trying our best to educate as much as we can.
1: 100 percent. And you know, I think you know, t- taking a look at what you know the the nation and the world's going through right now, you know, we're trying to view this as a you know, my, my businesses are trying to view this as an opportunity, right, to sort of dust off those old initiatives, right? I think you know, in the, the daily pace of traditional life, we get so caught up. Um, everyone's busy, right? And I, I think no matter what you're going through right now, you know, I I live in LA, you know, I spend two hours a day in the car, right. So I don't, I don't spend those two hours a day anymore. Right. And so how am I utilizing that time so I can maximize, you know, this time for the benefit of my business partners, you know, my, my, my colleagues at the the law firm and and for the community. Right. And so, um, that's easier said than done, um, obviously, but I think that's why, um, you know, it, it takes, um, it takes a group of people um, and it takes our whole industry to sort of work together collaboratively to um, to sort of move that needle meaningfully forward. Because th- th- n- I hope we don't have this much time again or I hope we don't have to deal with something like this again. Although I think inevitably this is a bit of a new normal.
0: I think it's a new normal, too. But I, I, I a couple questions just out of what you just said. I mean, when you said, you know, the industry needs to come together, that's also one of our biggest problems. We are still. Well, a, a pissant industry in the sense that we want to peel on everybody else and make sure we have our little piece of the foot print where we're going to keep doing this until the big boys step in and take it all over.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's that's certainly a dynamic on on, on with any of the businesses that I run that I really sort of, what I see where, where people struggle, right, it is sort of the, the cultural dynamic, right, between sort of usually the money side of things, the investment side are usually traditional business people, right, white collar, white people right? Uh, for, for the most part. And then you have your operators, um, who in large part are, you know, have been disenfranchised, um, or who have been, um, you know, who have neglected or not wanted to trust, you know, traditional service providers. And so what I really, really um, strive to do in, in everything is find the cultural matches between the money and the operators, right? Th- that's not always the case, right? Some of the operators are, are self funded. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of what I do is is uh, it are partnership breakups, right? Because people end up in this industry needing to get capitalized um, quickly. And so they take the first money that comes into the door. They get married before they date, right? And then, you know, six months down the line, they realize they hate each other Um, And so I think, you know, I really, really strive to do a great job in in finding, you know, great fits, you know, amongst um, whether it's investors and operators or, you know, ancillary service providers and operators. Um, That's something that I think is uh, is crucially important. And that's how myself as as a lawyer. Right. You wouldn't really. Typically, think of a lawyer as, as someone like a deal maker, per se, right? In the entertainment industry, you would, but in a traditional legal industry, you wouldn't. Um, and that's something that I've really, really tried to to focus. You know, my legal career on is is helping to ensure and create a reputation. You know, for, for myself and my businesses as one that that really strives to, to to be good good professional matchmakers, essentially.
0: Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think one of the things. If again, we'll talk offline on this, but I think. One of the areas that you know, we've been working in and working very diligently at for now twenty years has been the education side of this business and making sure that people get educated as to you know even the basics about uh, what we're doing. You know, what I mean, we really got to start convincing medical schools across this country to start teaching what they should have been teaching the last 30 years, and that's about the endocannabinoid system and the fact that this is not as foreign a product as most people think it is. But we also, once we educate the educators, we have to educate the masses. You know, I mean, there are out there who could probably use this more than anyone or uh, have been, been living a life based on, you know, misinformation and and lies. And we need to have to, to take the time now to, to re-educate them and get them understanding that this is probably 20 times better for them than anything that they have in their prescription medicine cabinet.
1: Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, on the education side, just from a amount of products and SKUs at this point, right? Imagine starting from scratch today, right? If you and I said, okay, hey, let's go to a dispensary or let's pull up a delivery service. You've got tinctures, you've got gummies, you've got creams, you've got you know dozens of strains of cannabis um, you've got your you know your vaporizer cartridges um, that's overwhelming right I mean uh, for, for a lot of people who don't know where to start and I think you know a, a lot of the time I mean my, my advice is always just you know what what's your what, what's your needs right like so, so if you try to sort of address the needs specifically if your knee's hurting then you probably don't have to smoke a joint right you could but you know a, a THC topical on your knee is probably going to be more immediately effective. Than you know, just smoke, uh, smoking cannabis or vaping cannabis, right? Not not necessarily, but um, that it, it's it's that just like basic education, like you're just talking about, is so crucial. And you know, where I sort of see the the, the baby boomer generation sort of you know needing um, or, or, or having the opportunity to use cannabis cannabis for the most beneficial purposes medically, um, there's just that gap, right? Because they may have consumed cannabis, you know, back in their college years, sixties and seventies, but a, the cannabis is very different than it was back then, as far as the amount and the potency, um, and the products you have, you know, like I just mentioned are infinitely greater, um, than what was available, um, back then. And so, uh, readily agreed. And that's, that's, you know, certainly something my agency likes to focus on is, uh, you know, on the education side, um, you know, crystal clear marketing and, and education efforts to, to help, um, arm the consumer, um, because, you know, if you go into a, a traditional dispensary, and this isn't a knock on any bud tenders, you know, bud tenders are, are extremely important to our space. Um, but they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not expected, nor should they be experts, you know, on everything.
0: A lot of them aren't experts or even even baseline knowledgeable, which is really kind of crazy. Your knowledge is based on the last guy that came in the back door and dropped off a pound of salt. That's what they're placing their recommendations on, which is really you know, but we'll get there. I mean, uh, what do you think the impact of COVID nineteen has been on the industry? What do you think about
1: that? Sure. So, I mean, you know, we've been dealing a lot with, um, you know, uh, you know, despite being, you know, ruled an essential business. i um, um, here. We have. I I would say certain operators who were able to carve out their market share prior to COVID are actually doing quite well. Um, And and by those operators, I mean, you know, cultivators, um, you know, manufacturers of, of very sort of prominent brands and dispensaries. The challenge has been for all of the smaller businesses who weren't really able to carve out their market share. They can't sort of survive you know, a couple months without, um, you know, without taking revenue in. And so, um, you know, we've been, we've been looking at, unfortunately, a, a lot of businesses are having to drastically, um, you know, sort of dip, you know, diminish their operations, you know, look at, um, you know, letting go of, uh, of some of their sales staff or, or some of their team, um, you know, trying to potentially pivot um, to like the CBD or hemp space because there are less sort of legal hurdles to get through. Um, you know, been working with a lot of, you know, this isn't exciting stuff per se, but it's just been what I've been dealing with. You know, working with a lot of their landlords and tenants, uh, our landlords on rent deferrals, um, issues like that. Um, and, and, and really, I, I see right now prominent brands and operators are doing well on sort of both ends of the spectrum on the cultivation side and on the retail side. Um, but a lot of our brand clients are telling us that retailers are stacking cash right now. Everyone's trying to shore up their cash position because of COVID. Um, and everyone's concerned about their cash position. And so um, a lot of our smaller brand clients are, are just not getting paid by dispensaries right now. And, and they feel that that's because these dispensaries are, are just stacking cash. And that's resulting in um, what I think is just going to be, unfortunately, a, a pretty significant consolidation. Of brands in our marketplace over the next um, couple of years. Now, I think there are certain initiatives, um, you know, social equity initiatives, you know, in the city of LA, city of Oakland, places like that, that will help ensure um, that, that that new brands are able to be, you know, sort of funded with grant funding, you know, from the state and things like that. But the reality is, it's, it's 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 a really tough gut check for a lot of smaller brands who tried to launch, you know, in the past year, and they're staring down the barrel of, you know, n- not being able to continue their business, um, which is which is brutal, you know. But there's, um, that's just the reality of what I'm seeing right now.
0: Wow. Well, now, what do you think about that? There's there's several people who are talking about the fact I've heard the rumors that you know COVID is also going to end up becoming a bigger opportunity when we get to the other side of this because several states want to look at this as an opportunity for tax revenue. And then they're gonna end up doing probably what New York State's doing, and that's setting absorbent tax on a legal product that's gonna just drive this back down into the black market.
1: That's the issue we're seeing in California as well, you know. I mean, once COVID hit um, you know, the reality is, you know, I, I will use a delivery service happily, um, but a lot of people have just sort of, um, you know, gone back to, to calling the person they used to get their cannabis from, you know, um, despite the fact that a lot of dispensaries offer, you know, pickup um, options now, um, I respect, you know, people not wanting to really have to, you um, you know, voluntarily interact with five or six people who they don't know, even if they're just picking up their cannabis, you still have to go outside and exchange money and, you know, touch bags and and be close to people. And so if that's the situation that you're faced with, um, I don't blame the consumers for sort of, you know, going back to their old purchasing habits. I do. And I'm hopeful, you know, and this is something our law firm has really been, you know, at the tip of the spear specific to policy. You know, they actually were uh, responsible for drafting, um, you know Colorado's adult use act um, altogether, all and we're really, really instrumental in, in getting that passed. Um, that's that's my hope now. I, I'm sort of a consummate um, you know idealist or uh, opportunist, but um, m- my hope is that other states see you know markets like um, you know successful recreational adult use markets um, like Colorado, like Washington, like Oregon, like California is getting there, but we're not quite there yet. Um, and, and recognize that this is an opportunity to generate much needed tax revenue during a time when the nation desperately needs it. Um, and so,
0: this is also a time where we're literally, like you were just talking about, the touch points that a person has to go through the fact that you can't use a credit card, you have to use cash. Therefore, cash has to be handed from one person to the next. That's cash that's been in somebody's pocket, fingered by one person, fingered by another, counted by another, counted by another. And, you know, every step along the way, there's opportunity for, you know, the possible transmission of this virus, because it does live on products. And so, you know, this seems like it would be an opportunity for firms like yours to really push for, you know, another form of, of uh, uh, money being used or another way to, to actually transact.
1: Sure, sure. That, that's that's a really interesting point, Montel, and I completely agree. Um, the reality is, and this is something that, um, you know, if you're, if you're sort of on the banking side of the industry, you might understand, but, um, you know, the, the federal government actually issued, you know, these FinCEN guidelines that actually allow federally insured banks to bank the cannabis industry. Um, but the reality is, um, they they have this massive due diligence checklist that banks have to go through to bank the cannabis space. And essentially the cost of doing business with cannabis businesses isn't worth what isn't worth our space yet. We're not big enough to them, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Um and so the reality is we only see um in mature adult use markets like Colorado, there are sort of state insured credit unions that will actually bank the space. California is not quite there yet, you know, because frankly the black market has been. competing and thriving. The the, the legal industry hasn't generated the tax revenue that we've needed to to sort of get to that point of having state insured credit unions. But I mean, completely agreed that this should be an opportunity. You know, I I hate hearing, you know, from our operational clients that, you know, they they have, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of cash that, you know, that someone's touching, right? And that, you know, they have to put it somewhere. And so they're putting it in safes or, or other things like that. Um, and it's it's just it's not effective, um, and it's it, it's it's not effective for you know you know uh, decreasing the, the the sort of the curve on this on the virus, obviously.
0: Now, now you're part of the brand of uh, you started your own law firm first, right? That's yes, true.
1: sir.
0: And your law firm was then, uh, I guess, purchased out, or you you went into Vincente setterberg Yes, sir. They were, they were not a, an original cannabis law firm.
1: So they, they were. So this is an interesting story, Montel. You'll get a kick out of this. So 2010, um, I met my, um, my my first business partner, Luke Stanton, um, at law school. He, he was the guy who introduced me to the cannabis space. So 2010, we're in our first year at Pepperdine. Um, Luke is at the time working for a cannabis-focused criminal defense lawyer. He gets me a job there. That's how I started working in the space. Um, Luke and I became, you know, best friends, and and then, you know, soon to be business partners. Um, and and we came up with this thesis back in 2010 from looking at Colorado go, going, uh, you know, adult use and recreational, and said, you know, who's doing that? Who's responsible for that? So it turns out that Vicente Cedarberg started in 2010 and they uh we essentially modeled you know frontera law group which was california based on vicente Cedarberg, who was you know california or who was uh colorado based um at the time and now now we have sort of a, a nationwide presence um and so we actually modeled frontera really um you know after vicente Cedarberg. and you know life's always interesting like that um you know we ended up meeting all of their partners um you know, uh, like two years ago and, you know, really, really just a perfect culture fit, you know, between us and them um, and, and, and our, our sort of, we, we came up with, with the plan and idea of really help, helping them, you know, bolster their California presence by bringing our roster at Frontera, um, you know, to Vicente Cedarberg. Um, and help sort of make them a, a preeminent force throughout the country, which they already were. Um, and so, interestingly enough, you know, Vicente Cedarberg is the the oldest, um, well, maybe not the oldest, but certainly the largest at this point, um, you know, cannabis and hemp focused law firm in the country.
0: Well, that's great. That's great. And you, and what department do you run for them? Or you run a division of them?
1: Or Sure. So I, you know, I would consider myself, I'm a partner. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Luke and I are, are the two newest partners of Vicente Cedarberg. I sort of co-run the Los Angeles office, you know, downtown LA, um, with my colleague, Cassia Furman and, and Josh Kappel. Um, and you know we have a big team there. My my role there though is they really you know my my goal and role is is really to continue to grow out the the media and entertainment practice. Um, you know and now that I have this massive massive ecosystem of best in class service providers, you know I really really want to turn into and become the go to you know lawyer and deal maker in the industry for anything involving you know entertainment assets, brand you know entertainment brands, celebrity licensing deals, anything like that. Um, and so that, that's really, really my focus. But a day in the life of a cannabis lawyer, I'd say is, is pretty similar to a day in the life of an entertainment lawyer, you know, on any given day, you know, I'm doing some compliance work, some regulatory work, some corporate work, some, you know, intellectual property work, uh, real estate, employment law, it's kind of everywhere, right? It, it's a it's a it's sort of a generic term that, that encompasses a lot of different, different things. But my passion and goal is really, really to, you know, flesh out and, and grow that entertainment practice to something You know, really, really prominent.
0: And now is composite,
1: is that part of Cedarburg also? So that is a a completely separate division uh, or a completely separate business altogether. Um, Different different business partners. I met uh, my partners in Composite while I was still at Frontera, um, a guy named Cody Tesno, um, who I'd worked with on a couple marketing initiatives for some some chef uh, clients uh, of mine who work in the sort of infused food uh, realm of cannabis. Um, He approached me and said, hey, I wanna start a full service creative agency Um, you know, focused on cannabis and hemp. And I said, you know, stop what you're doing right now and and let's partner up because, you know, we'd always had a good rapport. um, And really our focus there was kind of exactly what I said earlier, create a full service um, agency. That's really uh, kind of part of an ecosystem model, right? Like with, with, at Frontera, um, and now Vicente Cedarberg, um, you know, it, it's not that I have any issue, you know, referring business out to other service providers, but you know, if you lose that contact with the client, it, it, it's a real reality that you're gonna that you're gonna lose their business, right? And so I wanted to keep as much uh, of of a client's business as possible, sort of in our ecosystem and orbit. And so, like, the thesis there was really to, you know, um, bring high quality, you know, um, you know, preeminent first class agency. Uh, culture and work into the cannabis space, because I'm sure you can attest to the fact that not all the products you see um, in the space and that are even on the shelves and even some of the ni- the nicer brands, right? Um, they don't have the best marketing and branding, right? And if you're trying to win over uh, a consumer, right, who, who hasn't consumed cannabis in 30 years or ever, um, y- y- I'd, I'd prefer the product to look like something you'd find in Whole Foods or Sephora than something you'd find, you know, in a back alley. Right. And so that was really that was really our thesis there was, hey, let's really try to um, improve the optics of the space. And again, educate. You know, we, we work with several nonprofits at Composite, again, with that with that goal being to educate and decriminalize cannabis you know, in the average consumer's mind.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, you know, this whole thing that's going on right now. And again, because of covid, it seems to have kind of thrown this monkey wrench in the middle of the entire cannabis space. Because we were starting to build out a fairly decent CBD initiative across the country. And I don't know whether it will come to a screeching halt or things still moving forward. What's going on? And what do you think about CBD, the way it's being delivered right now, in the sense that, you know, for some dumb reason, we were differentiating CBD from hemp, from cannabis, which it's well in this. We'll get to that in another time. But what do you think about the ridiculousness of some of the, uh, the I don't know, this chasm between CBD and regular, and regular cannabis?
1: It's frustr It's incredibly frustrating. You know, that, that's the reality of the situation. A lot of our CBD brands, you know, they're the ones that got hit harder than, than our cannabis brands that, that we represent and work with because, you know, cannabis was deemed essential, but if, if, you know, a local, um, you know, if a local store in LA was was carrying a, a CBD product, um, you know, they likely weren't deemed essential. And so a lot of our clients have actually, interestingly, pivoted during this time from selling CBD products to doing some licensing deal in the THC space just so they could keep getting their brand out in the marketplace. Um, it's... Uh, you know, on the CBD, I think the thing that frustrates me the most, Montel, is the the reality that at the federal level, and there's this huge dynamic between the legal reality, the legal reality is, you know, once the, the farm bill passed uh, uh, to the beginning of 2018, you know, topical CBD products were, you know, are, are now legal to be sold, you know, and and, cons- and, and sold across the country. But um, until the FDA approves, you know, cannabidiol CBD as, as safe for human consumption, um, then legally, you know, CBD products are not legal. A uh, consumable CBD products are not legal to sell. Now that's the law, but practically, I mean, I'm sure you can do this in, in, in Florida too. I, you know, when, when times were normal pre COVID, you know, I could go to any coffee shop in Southern California and get CBD drops in my coffee. And so there hasn't been any enforcement. And I think the chat that the problem I have with that, right, is that without, any type of sensible regulation um, or enforcement, you're going to have brands that are getting market penetration that might not be high quality product, right? That, you know, you have that sort of that call it like the gas station CBD, right? Like those aren't usually really high quality formulations. Those are someone with a good relationship with a you know, gas station distributor right who, who might get their product out to 600 gas stations all at once um but you're not talking about high quality products and the scary thing about cbd right now and we've seen a couple instances of this are you know the medical claims that are being made about CBD they are just completely unfounded right and so you can't say CBD cures cancer right but you got people out there saying that and then you have consumers relying on, right on that statement and so that's just to me what bothers me the most is because the reality is we need to pass sensible regulation for CBD because it's it's a wonderful supplement and can be used very beneficially but it it's gravely concerning when i see the amount of brands that are just they're they're it's snake oil salesmanship you know they're just they're just
0: it, it disturbs me because you know i'm, I'm going to say it and people don't like it when i do but cbd is not the end to all we know this fact the doctor the person who discovered cbd to begin with also recognized the fact that you need an entourage effect you need chca you need cbn you see cbg you need cs thcv you need so many different Cannabis, says 166 of them. We only specialize and think about two, THC and CBD. Wrong. And why now there's so many broad spectrum ha- uh, hemp products in the marketplace being called that so that people don't make claims suggest just CBD. But where do you think you see this going once we get post-COVID?
1: Sure. So, I mean, my hope is that, I mean, post-COVID on the on the CBD side is that um you know a couple of our clients are working on some some really really impressive initiatives to me it's not necessarily post-covid it will be post the fda approving you know cbd is safe to consume because then montel we can get that entourage effect starting to you know when you can start to legally combine you know uh different cannabinoids not just cbd like you like you just talked about with thc right and so we can actually have um the most effective medicine possible um you know and and products possible honestly
0: when you said to look at it that way we should just have broad spectrum skip the distillation where we go to just distilling out one cannabinoid we should make an infused product that is the whole plant and then go back in augment it with just a little bit more of one two or three of the other cannabinoids
1: Absolutely, and that—that's you know I see you know on sort of the science side you know of, of the, the endocannabinoid system you know there's now um a couple companies um you know that are sort of doing you know twenty three andme me uh, basically for your endocannabinoid system which gives you an analysis of your system and and what specific cannabinoids might actually be um you know most beneficial for your overall health and wellness um, and so I I see the future of CV, of CBD not necessarily post COVID because I, I just you know the reality is we. Need the government to sort of move and and, and sort of really really take aggressive action to, to clean this up. And I just you know for better or worse I don't see that happening in the immediate future given given sort of the status of the country and what we're focusing on. But I see the CBD. I see the cannabinoid. I don't want to say CBD only, but sort of the cannabinoid uh, specific area of products generally re- really moving towards more personalized medicine, right? Um, and that to me would really be. Um, a win because, uh, you know, I don't think you necessarily need, you know, THC to have an effective product, but you certainly need more than just CBD. I can't tell you, I'm sure you get asked all the time. I can't tell you how many people say, Jeff, is this CBD product good? And I take a look at what, you know, whatever picture they send, you know, I was like, no, that, that's, that's not, that's, uh, it's, it's fine, but it's not, that's not some, you know, miracle, you know, cure in and of itself.
0: But I I believe that just because we, if if you go back to the original research and the original doctor, Dr. Michul, who discovered this, he stated at the time he discovered it, it works in an entourage effect. Maybe you may not need 90% THC to drive CBD, but you need THC, THCA, some CBG, and some of the other cannabinoids in there to actually drive that and help it permeate the cell wall. We know that now for a fact. It's It's not entering, it's not being as efficient as it could be. If, in fact, you we were to have the entire spectrum together, and then that spectrum together it doesn't have to be at the highest levels. Just that's what helps. It's like a taxicab. You know, a taxi cab needs four wheels. You know what I mean? Four wheels are some of the other cannabinoids. You know, I mean? you pull one of the wheels off, it's not, to, it's not going to get down the hot road very well. So, but what's in that taxi cab is a CBD, and that's being driven by the other cannabinoids.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, couldn't, couldn't. I mean, obviously, you know, that that those are just facts, you know, at, at this point. And um, it'll be I mean, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But I think, um, you know, I mean, it, my, one hope that I, I feel like if we come out of this, if, if some of those snake oil, you know, sort of uh, snake oil products, you know, gas station CBD products, you know, kind of die on the vine as a result of this, um, that to me wouldn't be the worst outcome. Not that I want to see businesses fail in any respect. That's not my goal, but I don't want to see consumers taking, you know, uh, mediocre products that have no medical veracity or, or, or positive effect at all.
0: Yeah. Especially when some of those products, you're talking about the gas station products that say CBD don't have any CBD in them at right.
1: all. <laughs> well, you got that. You got that too. You're just taking he- yeah, hemp oil right and right yeah. oil extract
0: yeah crack which is nothing yeah so well look you know uh, your passion started off as music are you getting an opportunity to do anything in music still
1: i am yeah you know fortunately um you know sort of the last couple of years i really sort of pivoted to um you know performing basically by myself more often um you know c- c- you know so so i discovered sort of the electronic side of music Um, and started producing and and DJing my own sets. And so, um, you know, pre COVID and and hopefully post COVID, you know, once, once we're in a safer place, I, uh, you know, get to perform as a saxophonist either with DJs or, um, you know, my, my, my true passion is, is sort of doing, um, live DJ sets where I'm mixing and playing saxophone, you know, with the, the melody, um, at the same time. And so I get to do that, you know, like I would say, you know, once every four to five weeks, um, you know, when things are normal, but right now I'm getting, uh, that extra two hours that I mentioned earlier is, is a good opportunity to sort of get in my shed. I have a nice little music studio here at the house and I'm, I'm starting to get my fingers back under me, you know, really for the first time in, in a long time. And so, um, you know, that's been good for certainly my, my mental health and the creative side of, of who I am. And, uh, you know, that, that's just something I'll never be able to stop doing because I'm just, uh, you know, music is, 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 is a fundamental part of, of you know, my being.
0: Well, anything that I did not ask you, what would you like to discuss that I didn't ask you?
1: I think, I mean, we've covered, we've covered a lot of it. I I, I would like to, I don't, I don't want to get too political. Um, you know, but, but I would like to just, um, you know, mention, um, that, uh, you know, what's been going on right now up in Minneapolis, that that my heart goes out to that, to that young man's family. Um, I'm sure you've been watching, uh, you know, what's going on there. Um, got to stop you know I'm sort of I'm sure you're sick and tired of being sick and tired I'm I'm the same way
0: I am yeah you say I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired I'm I'm just tired of thinking that I have to be concerned when I step outside my front door you know what I mean and I and right now we're living in a time when we have you know for political reasons on someone else's agenda you know a country that is divided and doesn't even know why it's divided. And eventually we go to the lowest base denominator and that's race to keep the divide going. And, you know, it's so unfortunate, so disgusting. It's almost, I'm at almost at a loss for words where I, I can't believe that the police department had not already charged these guys with murder. Clearly totally, Murder. Totally. murder. Totally. If I or you, and I, I can't tell what ethnicity you are, but if I or you were caught holding anybody on the ground, kneeling on someone's neck for eight minutes long, we would already have a pole shoved up our, you-know-what and, and tied to the wall of the prison. So I, I
1: just don't get it. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. You know, that that I mean, I I was in tears. You know, there were tears running down my face when I when I saw that video. It was it was brutal to watch. And so I'm just uh, I'm hopeful that if nothing else, that this is an opportunity for them to address this the right way, make sure they are charged appropriately um, and immediately. Well, you know, I tell you
0: something. One of the things that that this morning, and I shouldn't say, it 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 at least gave me a little hope. This morning when I watched some of the video of the protest coming from Minneapolis, I was heartened by the fact that there were so many people who were Caucasian out there protesting. Yes. Yes. I was heartened by the fact that finally something disgusts people enough to make them say enough is enough. We don't all want to be... You know what? What in less than you know three weeks, we've had two two murders and and another woman in New York City calling the cops on a guy just because he wanted to put a dog on a leash. You know, you had the other gentleman that was just you know shot to death or with a shotgun because he was you know committed a crime of being black while jogging. You know, right,
1: right.
0: It's at some point in time you have to wonder. When do other people say enough is enough? I mean, you know, it's not just left up to you know. I feel like I, I can scream at the top of my lungs every single day, but I'm just another. There he goes again, one of the black men, you know, running his mouth and and arguing for argument's sake. No, I, I I'm I'm just praying and wishing that more people come together and say this is wrong. And that was heartening today to see the fact that there were so many different people of so many different backgrounds. Out protesting. And protesting, I don't want to see violent protests in America. No,
1: no, yeah, totally,
0: totally. I hate the idea of it. But at the same time, at least it seems like a point was made.
1: Uh, agreed wholeheartedly. And I think, you know, at this point, you're starting to see you know white people um, you know kind of also agreeing enough is enough and when you're silent like you're not to blame if you're silent but if you're not participating and and standing with you know your community i think i think you have to acknowledge some some blame there as well right if you're if you're not participating in uh, whether that's spreading education and knowledge or dissatisfaction with what's going on, I think at this point the white community does need to. And I'm want tell, I'm I'm half Italian and half Irish, and I I, I, I kind of hide kind of hide it with, with this big beard here, but. Um, and so th- that's me. Right. And so, you know, I, you know, at this point, you know, I, I was I usually, you know, given the, the sort of the, the business I'm in, right, I, I, I like to typically stay neutral, but I'm at the point where, you know, enough is enough and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And now I'm, I'm, I'm getting out there and I'm being much more, um, you know, proactive and, and using my small platform, right, to to sort of express uh, my opinions as well.
0: You know, I gotta tell you, though, I, I wish those other, you know, there was only one guy with a Knee on a neck, there were three guys watching. And those other three cops that were standing there watching are just as culpable as the one with the knee on the neck.
1: 100%.
0: Until we get, you know, I understand the blue wall of science, silence, and I understand the fact that, you know, these first responders need to stay together and stand together, but they can't stand for ignorance. They can't. And if they allow themselves to do so, they're just as culpable. So, my friend, I can't say thank you enough for being here today, sharing with us. And I'm telling you, you know, you said so much in this, this podcast today with Let's Be Blunt, that uh, I in my office is definitely going to reach out to you because I think there's some things that we could definitely do synergistically to help move this and get this keep this, move, this movement moving forward.
1: Oh, that's music to my ears, Montel. It's an honor and a pleasure, man. So thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you to your team. And uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to I'm I'll, I'll, happy to chat whenever, my friend.
0: Absolutely. We'd love to have you back. You know, you've been tuned in to Let's Be Blown a Month. If somebody wanted to reach out to you and get some information from you, how would they do so? They can give you give me a website, whatever you want to throw up.
1: Sure. Um, you know, you can, uh, my, my email address, well, um, you can go to, my Instagram is at JDWelsh, J-D-W-E-L-S-H. That's an easy follow. Um, you can also uh, email me at uh, j. Welsh at VicenteCedarburg.com. That's a bit of a mouthful, so maybe we can put that um, at the link at the bottom. We'll
0: post it at the bottom.
1: Absolutely. No, my pleasure, Montel. Thank you so much, man. This is, this is an honor.
0: Absolutely. An honor for me, too, sir. Thank you so much. You've been tuning in to Let's Be Blowing Montel. Make sure you tune into the next one. Thanks a lot for being here.
1: Podcasts.